So good evening. Over the course of this retreat so far, we've dived straight into the core teachings of the Buddha, both the theory and the practice. So during the day, we've been exploring these different meditation techniques from the four foundations of mindfulness, the Satipatthana Sutta. And last night, I gave an overview of the four noble truths, the framework of the teachings that really orients all of these different meditation practices in the direction of the deepest possible freedom of heart and mind. And in the service of that freedom, over the last couple of days, we spent many hours cultivating mindfulness, this capacity of the mind to be aware, to know what we're doing as we're doing it, and to know that we know. And as many of you have discovered, at times it can seem like surprisingly hard work, because even though it's simple, it's not easy. And most of us over the course of our lifetime have spent, uh, developed some pretty strong habits of not paying attention to our experience and of distracting ourselves in various ways. So mindfulness can be a real going against the grain practice, as they say in the Zen tradition. It can take a surprising amount of time and effort to establish the mind in this different way of relating to our experience. And the Buddha recognized this need for effort by making it one of the eight factors of the Noble Eightfold Path. I mentioned this path very briefly last night in the context of the Four Noble Truths. The fourth of these Four Noble Truths is the path of practice that the Buddha gave us to metaphorically cure us of dis-ease, of dukkha. And it includes eight different factors that we need to cultivate together to help free us from these unhelpful habit patterns and in their place to develop skillful qualities such as wisdom and compassion. So just as a very quick reminder, the eight factors of the Noble Eightfold Path are right or wise view, right or wise intention, right or wise speech, action, livelihood, effort, mindfulness or sati, and concentration or samadhi. So this path that the Buddha laid out is a very comprehensive one. It includes all aspects of our lives. And I'm not going to go into all of it in detail tonight, but I'm going to just give a brief overview of how these factors work together In the traditional way, they're divided into sets of three broad areas of practice, ethical conduct, meditation, and wisdom. And these three are like the three legs of a tripod or a stool. We need all three of these areas to be equally well developed if our practice is going to stay in balance. So the ethical grouping of the factors includes right speech, right action, and right livelihood. And those three are rooted in this core commitment to non-harming, just as we committed to the five precepts uh, on opening night, this non-harming underlies right speech, right action, right livelihood. And I think of these factors of the path as being the relational factors 
because they're about how we show up in the world, what we say and do, how we interact in our homes, our communities, in our workplaces. And then the next grouping of the path factors are the samadhi factors, the meditative factors, and these are more directly what get cultivated in formal meditation practice. So this is the grouping of right effort, right mindfulness, and right samadhi or concentration. And these are qualities of mind that we can develop very strongly in formal meditation practice as we have been doing over these last few days. And then the last group, the wisdom group, includes right view and right thought, also known as right intention. And at first it might seem confusing that the wisdom group comes last in that uh, schema, but in the actual Eightfold Path, right view and right uh, thought or right intention are the first two factors of the path. But what this is pointing to is that there's a circularity to this path. It's not a linear do this, tick, got that, step onto the next one, tick, got that, kind of uh, one by one. All of these different factors are interrelated. And we do need some degree of wisdom to even get on the path. Because unless we had at least some inkling that there might be a better way of living our lives, we'd never even, beginning, we'd never even begin to explore our hearts and our minds. And all of us here already have some degree of wisdom, actually probably more than we might realize. Because unless we had some degree of wisdom, we wouldn't have even come on this retreat. So the path starts with right view and right thought as that initial wisdom that gets us launched and then keeps us headed in the right direction. And as we develop this wisdom, we develop our ethical conduct and we strengthen our meditation practice, this in turn deepens our wisdom, our clear seeing. And when we see more clearly, we start to bring a more refined awareness to our ethical conduct. And things that in the past might have seemed, well, a little bit sketchy or dodgy or marginal, but we'd be, oh, it's okay. Now, with this increased wisdom, we realize, no, that's not an appropriate thing to do. And so as our wisdom gets stronger, our ethical conduct becomes more refined and we protect ourselves from a whole pile of mental agitation, qualities like um, anxiety and blame and shame and uh, fear and all that kind of thing because we're living a more blameless life. So our, our minds are better able to stay calm quiet, concentrated, we're not hindered by anxiety and regret and so on. And when the mind is more stable, the deeper states of meditation have a better chance of arising. So the Noble Eightfold Path, rather than being a straight line, I think of it as a kind of like a spiral. And we go around and around, all these factors feed into each other and create this kind of, you can think of it as like a thermal updraft where we can get onto this sequence and it just starts to build almost of its own momentum in an upwards direction. <coughs> Bless you all, <laughs> lots of sneezing happening. 
So here on retreat like this, we have a very precious opportunity to strengthen the three meditation factors of the path, right effort, right mindfulness, and right samadhi concentration. And I've already talked a little bit about mindfulness and samadhi, so tonight I wanted to focus more on right effort because this one doesn't always get the same uh, exposure. And even though as you all know very directly from your own experience, this practice does take effort. The effort to keep showing up and to meeting whatever we experience with as much balance as possible. And this balance is woven throughout the Buddha's teachings. As I mentioned last night, he taught within this framework of the middle way, which is not falling into self-indulgence on one hand, nor self-punishment in the form of excessive striving on the other. So learning how to stay balanced through changing circumstances is one way of understanding the whole goal of this practice. So tonight I'm going to be talking more about right effort. And I just wanted to take a moment to check and to notice if there are any responses when you hear this phrase, right effort, if there's any particular response of either interest or recoil or neutrality, just notice. It does make me think, is there a wrong effort? Uh-huh. <laughs> and then I, just from your body language and the way you said that, a little bit of like, mm-hmm, yeah. So we fall into ideas of right and wrong. Effort sounds like work and duty. Effort sounds like work and duty. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. A chore. A chore. Uh Uh-huh, uh-huh. So it's great to see all of these perspectives and conditioned responses that often we come into contact with or might be just sort of in our peripheral vision when we start to explore this factor of right effort. Because I know for myself, when I would hear about it, I'd be thinking, oh no, here we go. The teachers are going to give us some kind of performance review and they're going to talk about how, how on retreats in Asia they only ever got four hours sleep a night. And that just sounds so exhausting, I want to go back to bed right now. Or we might, some of us might have the opposite response of finally we get to the real practice. Enough of all that fluffy stuff about kindness and compassion. Bring it on. I'm going to only sleep for three hours tonight. (laughs) So we all have our default responses to um, this topic. And that's partly why I wanted to explore it. Because unless we see these underlying this underlying conditioning, it's driving us in ways that may not be so skillful. So again, for myself, when I heard right effort, I would fixate on the effort piece and think that it meant blood, sweat, and tears. And I completely missed the right part of right effort. And I see this unbalanced approach in a lot of students too. And I think we do seem to be very binary creatures, we have this sort of all or nothing approach. And we get caught in these dualities of good and bad and right and wrong and success and failure and so on. And 
One way this shows up on retreat is often that we start by making way too much effort. We get caught in excessive striving and we might try extra hard to show up for every moment of every sitting and every walking and we push ourselves to get up early and stay up late. And maybe we can maintain that for a day or two, but at some point we often end up collapsing into sort of exhausted apathy. Maybe we take some time to recover and then we launch ourselves again with the same over-efforting and so we swing between striving and apathy and striving and apathy. And I've joked with some of you that I sometimes call this the superhero to slug syndrome because we put in so much effort and often it's driven by fear, the fear that unless I make 110% effort and be like a superhero, I'm going to end up back like that loathsome slug that I used to be. And ironically, that's often what happens because we run out of steam and we exhaust ourselves in the effort to be superhuman and then we are not able to practice skillfully at all. So all of us need to recognize for ourselves when we're forcing the practice in some way. And we can see this even in each meditation session. So next time we're sitting together and the bell rings, you might notice Is there a wave of relief? Oh, thank goodness. If so, that might be a sign that there was a little bit too much effort during the sitting because the moment right before the bell rings and the moment right after the bell rings are equal opportunities to be aware. But if we have this idea, now I'm meditating and metaphorically remembering Utejaniya's example of the hands touching with that lightness, When the bell rings, it's the bell ringing, and then we get up and walk. And there isn't that sense of forcing and releasing. For some people, the opposite experience might be true. The bell rings and we realize we've been asleep for the last 27 and a half minutes. So that might be an example of not making quite enough effort. And when the energy is low like that, this is sometimes referred to as sinking mind. And uh, it's classically one of the five hindrances, which I'll talk more about later. But for those of you who are familiar with it, this is a hindrance of sloth and torpor, which refers to sluggishness and dullness of the body and the mind. And some of you might know the animal, the sloth, that apparently moves really slowly. A friend of mine has spent time hanging out with sloths in South America and he said their fur is actually green with algae because they move so slowly. (laughs) Perhaps it's not quite that extreme, but I also think of the the koala that we, we have in Australia, not right here in this part of the Blue Mountains, unfortunately. But if you've seen koalas in real life or perhaps in nature programs, At least during the day, they don't seem to have a lot of energy. So you see them in trees and they're just kind of a... And it's like there's just enough energy to stop them falling out of the tree, but there's not a whole lot else going on. And sometimes we can recognize that quality in our meditation too. that We get sink into this uh, sort of static state. So it's helpful for us to recognize our own default patterns, not 
so that we can reinforce self-judgment, but so we can use this as useful information. Most of us have a tendency to fall more to one side than the other, to either make too much effort or not enough. And in the Buddha's teaching, there's a well-known metaphor for this need to find balance. And even with the Buddha as their teacher, some of his students still struggle to find this balance. So one of these students was a former musician who uh, was known as Sona, And he was uh, making far too much effort. And actually, because of that, wasn't uh, making any real progress. So he went to the Buddha to ask for advice. And the Buddha said to him, well, when you were a musician and a lute player, and you wanted your instrument to have a good sound, did you tune the strings too tight? And of course the answer is no. And then he said, then did you tune the strings too loose? And again, the answer is no. We need to tune the strings just right to find that midpoint between too tight and too loose. And we do that by listening. We need to train ourselves to listen to our own bodies and hearts and minds to recognize for us what is too tight and what is too loose. So this is a practice of deep listening to our inner experience and to our outer circumstances to know what's appropriate balanced effort for us. And even when we found that midpoint, we need to keep listening because just like a musical instrument, we don't tune it once and then that's it. Because uh, conditions are constantly changing, any instrument gets out of tune after a while, just as we ourselves do. So what's right effort right now will be very different from in the sitting in the morning, will be different in the walking, will be different next week or next month, or if we're sick or injured. So some of what I'm talking about tonight will apply to the too tight people and some towards the too loose people. And whenever I give this talk, I wish there was a way of kind of filtering the message so that all the too tight people hear the correct instructions and all the too loose people hear the instructions that are appropriate for them. Because I know from my own experience that we often like to hear what reinforces our existing tendencies. So when I talk about easing up, all the too loose people go, yes, fantastic, I'm going to really sleep in tomorrow. And all the too tight people, when I talk about making more effort, will go, yep, no more sleep for me. So see if you can make the effort to not reinforce whatever your default relationship to effort is. So to begin with, I'll start with the tendency of making too much effort and ways to back off. So first, just to say, uh, we do not to take this personally because in our mainstream society generally, there is a lot of conditioning around busyness and achievement and attaining and getting and idealism and perfectionism. So it's not surprising that we would bring some of that to our practice. So we're constantly looking for results and getting impatient when these don't show up fast enough. We very easily get caught in expectations about how our practice is supposed to unfold. 
how it's supposed to look and what's supposed to be happening. And usually what's actually happening looks quite different from our expectations. And then the flip side of expectation comes in and we experience disappointment and self-judgment and doubt about ourselves or in the practice. A lot of energy gets consumed wondering if we're doing it right. We might start comparing ourselves to other people even though from the outside we don't actually have a clue of what's happening in their practice. So this striving often results in feelings of inadequacy and self-hatred. And as I was saying earlier, we can easily approach the practice as a giant self-improvement project that's actually rooted in self-aversion. So we need to bring awareness to those unseen beliefs and expectations and assumptions. Otherwise, this cycle of feeling unworthy and trying too hard and judging ourselves and feeling more unworthy and trying even harder just keeps on spinning. So how do we get out of this cycle? First, we need to really bring awareness to how we're relating to our experience. To frame that as a question, because often when we're mindful, we're, we might be mindful of the body, we might be mindful of thoughts and moods and emotions and mind states, but we don't always notice the attitude that we're practicing with. So again, Saito Utejaniya has this question where just from time to time, you might notice, you might ask yourself, what's happening in the body right now? What's happening in the heart and mind right now? And then how am I relating to this experience? And just asking that question, we might notice a sense of leaning forward or expectation or wanting or the opposite, a sense of not liking, resisting or sometimes not knowing, spacing out. So just asking from time to time, how am I relating to this experience can shine light on those sometimes unseen assumptions or reactions. And sometimes when we bring in this investigation, we can drop down to a deeper level of understanding and notice if we are getting caught in strong identification. And for myself, a question that has been helpful is to ask, well, who would I be if I wasn't making so much effort? Who would I be if I wasn't making so much effort? And for me, at times, that's revealed a sense of fear, again, of perhaps becoming the slug I used to be. Or when I've worked with other students in this way, sometimes they uncover some very powerful unconscious fears of becoming their father, for example, or their brother, or different um, forms of fear can emerge. And if we do happen into this, to touch into some kind of fear, again, it's important not to take it personally and to see if we can meet it with compassion. So these are some ways that the excessive striving can manifest. And then on the other side of the coin is the imbalance of not making quite enough effort. 
falling into complacency or habitually retreating into our comfort zones. And on one level, this is completely natural. Of course, we love comfort. And given the choice, I think most of us would probably quite happily stay in our comfort zones for the rest of our lives, if that were possible. So one Tibetan teacher, he complained about his students. Uh, He said he was constantly telling them to wake up. But he said they were like marsupials, always trying to wriggle back down into the pouch. And I like that he used an Australian reference there. I think we can relate to that. We just want to wriggle back down into the pouch and stay there. But the problem with that is that the more we keep retreating into our comfort zones, you might have noticed that they keep getting smaller. And you might have noticed even here on retreat where our options are quite limited, just how quickly we develop our own strategies for trying to stay comfortable. So we have our favorite seat in the dining room or our favorite place to walk or our favorite clothes that we wear We set up a routine for ourselves of when to nap and when to shower and when to take tea and when to snack. And if our routine gets thrown off in some way, it's quite amazing how upset we can get. Well, perhaps that's just me. So we might see how we all have our own strategies for maximizing comfort and avoiding discomfort. And as meditation does become more and more mainstream, it's sometimes conflated with making ourselves more comfortable. So uh, more often these days at the various retreat centers I go to, we sometimes get people signing up for a retreat who are then very disappointed to find that there's no spa pool and there's no massage studio or there's no art therapy room because in their minds, retreat is about self-care. And that's not to deny that massage and spas and art therapy can be very beneficial. But if they're not related to with wisdom, they can easily, uh, we can rationalize self-care, self-indulgence as self-care. And the problem with self-indulgence is that it's a slippery slope. I've noticed this in my own practice at times when sometimes during longer retreats, instead of following the schedule after a while, usually after a period of perhaps trying too hard, I've told myself, well, I just need to ease up a bit. And it's possible that at one point that was true, but I was surprised to notice with hindsight how quickly that became the default setting, this this unconscious habit of taking it easy. So instead of sitting and walking and sitting and walking, it became more like sit one, nap one, sit half of one, nap two, do a little bit of walking, lie down a bit more, because, yeah, the Buddha said lying down meditation is okay. And it is true that the Buddha taught four postures, and one of them is lying down. But you might notice, or I could notice for myself, how easily lying meditation turned into napping, and napping drifted into long periods of sleep, and then the momentum became even more stalled. And again, we can rationalize and tell ourselves, well, I've been working hard. I need to take care of myself. It's the kind thing to do over these few days. And still with that caveat about listening to ourselves, 
and finding for ourselves what's appropriate effort. I'd like to talk a bit more about the benefits that can come when we do challenge ourselves skillfully. So if we have noticed that our practice is sliding from self-care more into the terrain of self-indulgence, it can be helpful to reconnect with our deepest aspirations. So right here we have the uh, aspirations that you wrote on the opening night. And we can ask, is what I'm doing really in the service of those aspirations? Or am I moving in the direction of total freedom that these teachings offer us? And this freedom is not about getting comfortable by constantly manipulating our external conditions. Instead, it comes from training our inner capacity to let go and to let be. And when we can do this, we're not so dependent on external conditions being a certain way in order for us to be happy. However, if our default strategy has always been to avoid discomfort, then when we do run into life's inevitable challenges, we're not going to have the inner resources to meet them. And it is true that here and now in this setting, we can ask for an extra pillow or take a hot shower or have a cup of tea or eat a piece of chocolate or secretly play with our phones or whatever we want to do to alleviate discomfort. But at some point in our lives, we will find ourselves in situations where our usual strategies either aren't available or don't work anymore. And eventually, as I mentioned last night in relation to the first noble truth, we are going to have to face into our own aging and illness and dying process. So this training in expanding our comfort zones is a little bit like uh, lifting weights. You can probably tell I'm not a weightlifter, but the analogy is that if we want to lift weights, we don't start with 50 or 80 kilos. We begin with smaller weights and then gradually build that muscle, gradually stretch our comfort zone so that it expands to um, extend what we're capable of. So this is really a training, a creative exploration of seeing where we're tending to get stuck and inviting ourselves to challenge ourselves a little, to move out of our physical comfort zones, but also our mental comfort zones. All the ways that we tend to cling to our views and opinions and perceptions and judgments and beliefs about who we are and what we're capable of. So being here on retreat is a very powerful opportunity to test some of those habits and some of those perceptions. So noticing whatever we're doing with habit and seeing if we can play with letting that go. So for example, if we're always first in the lunch line, maybe we experiment with being second or 10th. If we're always late for lunch, maybe we experiment with getting there a little earlier. Same with coming into the hall, just noticing all the default ways that we tend to um, show up and seeing if we can play with doing them differently, for example. So this willingness to let go of our creature comforts and our 
internal strategies for staying the same is a, is a form of renunciation. And this too, renunciation, is an aspect of the path factor of right thought. And I'd like to say a little bit more about the practice of renunciation now because even in the relatively short time that I've been meditating and been involved with different meditation centers, with the mainstreaming of meditation, I've noticed that more and more these days people have some resistance to silence and to simplicity, the silence and simplicity that are offered on retreat. And people don't understand as easily that it's pretty much impossible to develop samadhi, real stability of mind, without some commitment to silence, to solitude, to simplicity, to slowing down and to stillness. And it's a catch-22 situation because if we stay in our usual habit patterns of just having a few chit-chats here and there or zooming around in our habitual busyness or getting involved in all kinds of unnecessary projects, we never get to experience the profound ease that comes from samadhi. And we also miss out on the benefits of the insights that come when the mind drops into this deep stability and stillness and we can access a more intuitive and embodied wisdom. So these qualities of silence and solitude, of simplicity and slowing down and stillness, they're all offered in the service of clear seeing. And if we really want to make the most of our time here, we need to be willing to experiment with this practice of renunciation as a very powerful antidote to our more habitual strategies of greed and grasping and clinging and staying stuck in our comfort zones. So this renunciation as a practice, I want to acknowledge that the English word renunciation, if I was to check again, probably not very appealing connotations. And in fact, if you look in the dictionary, renunciation is talked about as repudiation and sacrifice and giving up and abandonment and resignation and abdication and surrender and foregoing and abstention and going without and doing without and giving up and rejection of and that's not even half of them, but you get the, you get the picture. It's not a very um, inspiring uh, quality. And yet in the Buddha's teachings, when I was uh, researching what was said in the suttas about this, in almost every case, he refers to the bliss of renunciation. And in English, that might sound like a total oxymoron, a total contradiction. <laughs> Because in English, bliss and renunciation are not two words that generally go together. So it's, explore, it's worth exploring how might we experience renunciation as blissful. So one way of perhaps reframing it is uh, Joseph Goldstein talks about renunciation as non-addiction. And that at least, I think, points to the freedom that comes when we're not dependent on external conditions for our happiness. I think all of us know firsthand what it's like to be caught in some kind of 
compulsive or addictive relationship to something or to someone. And often when we're on retreat and we can't get our usual fix of whatever it is, we might experience the dukkha of addiction quite strongly at first. But if we can allow ourselves to surrender into the silence and the solitude and the stillness, the simplicity, we might experience a surprisingly profound level of ease and happiness and freedom. And this brings a deep insight into the truth that having all of our sense pleasures satisfied is not the only way to happiness. And looking back, I was very fortunate to have an experience of this pretty early on in my own practice, an experience of the bliss of renunciation when I sat my first Vipassana or insight retreat in Thailand. And this uh, retreat center was owned by a nun and she'd set it up with two Western teachers because she wanted to make Vipassana practice available to Western backpackers. And now I think back on it, that was a very generous motivation of hers. But when I arrived at the retreat center for the start of the retreat, I was a little bit confronted because on the notice board there was a sign and it said something like, you're not here to change the center. You're not here to change the staff. You're not here to change the teachings. You're not here to change the teachers. You're not here. You are here to change yourself. And if you're not willing to do that, please don't sign up for the retreat. So this was a fairly direct kind of message. And I took a deep breath and I signed up. And I soon discovered that by Western standards, this retreat center was quite basic. It was next to a small monastery and there were no showers, there was no hot water, there was no flush toilets. And we stayed in little bamboo huts that had just enough room for two people to lie down next to each other. And we were issued with one bamboo mat and one thin pillow and one acrylic blanket each. And that was what we slept on. There was no furniture, so we just hung our clothes off nails in the wall. And so that first night I wasn't getting a lot of sleep and I spent quite a bit of time writing all these notes in my mind about for the manager just with some helpful hints about how they could improve the center a little. And I was about to leave them and then I remembered the sign on the notice board, you're not here to change the center and so on. So I refrained and I was really glad that I did because the next day when I started exploring the center more, it was totally obvious that there was no secret stash of inner sprung mattresses and there wasn't like the teachers had their own flush toilet. We were being offered everything that was available and it was offered with such kindness and generosity. The nuns who were mostly elderly were getting up at about 3.30 or 4 every morning and cooking for us in this tiny kitchen with charcoal burners, no electricity, no blenders or choppers or everything was done by hand and the food was fantastic. So it would have been very ungrateful of me to be complaining about anything. But what surprised me even more was that after a few days of this pretty simple lifestyle, I experienced a sustained period of happiness that was unlike anything I'd ever experienced in my life before. 
And it was so surprising to me that I could experience that in those circumstances. And if there had been an option to upgrade to a single room with an inner sprung mattress and air conditioning and hot water, I absolutely would have taken it. But I would have probably missed out on a very valuable opportunity to see that happiness is not necessarily dependent on making ourselves comfortable. And this lesson was reinforced even more strongly a few months later when I had the opportunity to do another retreat, this time in England. And this was in a slightly different tradition, but I was really looking forward to re-experiencing some of the bliss that I had tasted in Thailand. And at this retreat center, we did have hot water and showers and flush toilets, and we also had beds with inner-sprung mattresses and two fat pillows each and quilts and electric blankets. And there was a library that was filled with Dharma books and with magazines, and there were colorful bean bags that we could sit in while we read those magazines. And there was an art room with art supplies, and we could paint and draw whenever we wanted. And there was a coffee machine that was brewing fresh coffee all day long. And there were beautiful flower gardens that we could wander in. And then there was the peaceful English countryside outside. And we were encouraged to meditate several times a day. But after the first day, I realized nobody's actually in the hall. There was just two or three of us. The retreat wasn't in silence. And after about day two, I wasn't spending much time in uh, the hall either because there were just too many other fun activities to engage in. And because we weren't in silence, it wasn't long before I started hearing from the other retreatants about all the struggles that they were having. So one person was having a really hard time because they only had one variety of black tea and it wasn't the brand that they were used to. And somebody else, they felt the inner sprung mattresses weren't quite firm enough and the pillows were too fat. And somebody else thought that the salad dressing had too much oil in it. And the coffee maker didn't keep the coffee quite hot enough for long enough. And the water in the water pressure in the showers was a bit weak and so on and on and on and on. And if I hadn't just come from the retreat in Thailand, I probably would have had all of my own complaints to add to everyone else's. But what was interesting to me was that the more comfort we were offered, the less happy we seemed to be. And I enjoyed that retreat in England far less than the one in Thailand. And I didn't come anywhere close to experiencing that deep, peace and contentment and bliss that I'd experienced in Thailand. And so when I reflected on the differences, I think part of it was that something to do with simplicity and not having options. So in Thailand, there was no choice. It was totally obvious that what you see is what you get. So after a short struggle with discomfort, eventually my mind just went quiet and got on with it. But in England, there was the illusion of being able to control the environment. So the mind was always looking for the most comfortable bed and the tastiest food and the newest magazine and the hottest coffee and so on. It was endless and it was exhausting. And again, on one level, it's natural to want to be comfortable. And some degree of comfort is helpful for our lives and for our Dharma practice. 
But learning how much comfort is necessary is an aspect of right thought or right intention. So there's an essay on this topic by uh, the American monk Tanisaro Bhikkhu. He calls it trading candy for gold, renunciation as a skill. And he, does, he describes our tendency to go for the easy option and the quick fix and the instant gratification rather than what will benefit us more deeply in the longer term. He says, there's something in all of us that would rather not give things up. We'd prefer to keep the candy and get the gold. But maturity teaches us that we can't have everything. That to indulge in one pleasure often involves denying ourselves another, perhaps better one. Thus, we need to establish clear priorities for investing our limited time and energies where they'll give the most lasting returns. This means giving top priority to the mind. Material things and social relationships are unstable and easily affected by forces beyond our control. So the happiness they offer is fleeting and undependable. But the well-being of a well-trained mind can survive even aging and illness and death. To train the mind, though, requires time and energy. This is one reason why the pursuit of true happiness demands that we sacrifice some of our external pleasures. So as Tanisara Bhikkhu says, it's normal to not want to give things up. But if we're serious about getting the deepest benefits of this practice, we need to give top priority to the mind. And as we develop the skill of renunciation as part of this path factor of right thought, it's just as important, perhaps even more important, to let go of what we're clinging to internally as well as externally. So as I said earlier, being willing to look at our personality habits, our conditioned reactions, our views and our opinions, and see if, one, are they even accurate? And two, are they helpful? And if they're not, being willing to let them go. And ultimately, this practice of internal renunciation leads to complete freedom. When we can see through the conditioned sense of self that is the source of so much of our suffering. So when we practice renunciation on this level, we pay attention to all the ways that we're constructing a sense of identity, a sense of me, a sense of something solid in the world. And we try to see through this solidification to the truth that who we think we are is a constantly changing process arising due to causes and conditions, and there's no fixed, stable me at the center of that process. And in this way, renunciation leads very directly to insight, to clear seeing. So this practice of renunciation can be, um, cover a whole spectrum from ordinary, everyday giving up of, say, coffee or chocolate, right through to the highest liberation. And because it's a spectrum, we start where we are and then gradually begin to make the changes that move us in the direction of ever-deepening freedom. And it's good to practice renunciation now while we still have some choice 
because all of us at some point in our lives will be in situations where we don't have a choice anymore, where we have to give things up. At these times, we've probably all experienced the extra dukkha or stress that comes from holding on, from clinging and from attachment to things being a certain way. And we've also, in the opposite direction, also experienced moments of ease when we were able to surrender to the situation, to let go of resistance and to open to accepting the truth of how things are. But this isn't easy So we need to practice now to strengthen this muscle for the times when we are really going to need it. So as Tanasaro Bhikkhu mentioned, and as the first noble truth points to, aging, illness, and death. With aging and illness come big changes, and often unwelcome ones. Whether we like it or not, at some point we're challenged to let go of our physical health and perhaps our mental health too. We'll probably, as we age, we'll lose our fitness, our sexual attractiveness, our status in society, our role at work, our identity as a mother or a father or a wife or a husband or a partner. We might lose our financial security And often our social lives get smaller as our friends too are aging and dying. But if we've been exercising the muscle of renunciation, of relinquishment, it will be much less of a struggle to accept all of these changes. And ultimately when death does come, we'll have more chance of dying with some degree of ease and acceptance. So in some ways, practicing renunciation now, we can think of it as a kind of an investment in the future, perhaps like a a form of internal superannuation or a form of life insurance. So while we still have reasonable health and resources, we're putting strategies in place that can help us when those resources are no longer available. But this is not only about practicing for the future. Each moment of letting go brings its own moment of freedom right now. So it's a win-win situation. And some of you know the Thai forest meditation master Ajahn Chah. He's often quoted in relation to this process of letting go. He says, do everything with a mind that lets go. If you let go a little, you will have a little peace. If you let go a lot, you will have a lot of peace. If you let go completely, you will know complete peace and freedom. So thank you for your attention. I hope that it helps all of us to move in this direction of peace and freedom. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.